Larry Bird's not walking through that door. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. It's my team. It's my quarterback. Okay. It is... God! 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 To be the man! You gotta beat the man! The 2-1. Swan Lane drive left hand! Water on his end! This is the Powers on Sports Podcast. All right, welcome to the Powers on Sports Podcast, March Madness Edition. We have an action-packed episode for you this week. You're obviously hopefully hearing this before the NCAA tournament starts on Thursday. The game's on Thursday and Friday. We are going to talk all things NCAA tournament. Got Matt Zemick from USA Today, Trojan Wire. We are going to break down every region We're going to give you nuggets on all the teams, uh, big matchups, coaching, officiating, all the things that are going to hopefully help you make some good picks. I'm going to give you some gambling picks as far as some teams that I like in the first round, some games that I like. We're going to talk all things NCAA, but before we get to Matt Zemeck, we are going to hit on the breaking news. Tom Brady is back in the NFL. We're going to talk NFL free agency. Major League Baseball free agency is back on. Spring trainings are opening this week. Spring training games will start later in the week in Florida and Arizona. So we're going to talk that uh, as well. We had some big trades in the in Major League Baseball. A couple big moves so far. But again, action-packed episode. Matt Zemmett coming up in just a few minutes. I'm going to give you some thoughts on, again, Brady, the NFL, NFL free agency. And I'm going to give you some picks heading into your Thursday, Friday uh brackets for those people that like to make a little investment in the game so let's get right to it so if you weren't watching in the middle of the selection show on sunday we had breaking news red flashing uh things at the bottom of the screen cbs espn tom brady after 40 days and 40 nights for you wrestling fans habuda dean Kevin Sullivan and Hubuda Dean, 40 days and 40 nights. Tom Brady says, I cannot stand retirement any longer. I am coming back to play. Issued a statement on his Instagram account. Uh, You saw Brady over the weekend over in England watching Manchester United. Remember that Manchester United is owned by the Glazers who own the Buccaneers. So again, maybe people were starting to put some dots together that, that Tom might be a little itchy. But again, Tom Brady announces Sunday night he is coming back to play for a 23rd season, and he made it emphatic he'll be back with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And the reason why Sunday night was important is Monday of this week was the opening of the tam- of the open negotiation period, the three-day open period where free agents can make basically verbal deals, and you're seeing lots and lots of these deals happening. And so the Buccaneers, tons and tons of free agents on their roster – uh, we're now knowing which way they could go with Tom Brady. If, if they had Brady, they were going to make a push to sign guys. They did that. Carlton Davis, Ryan Jensen, uh, Aaron Stinney, all back with the Buccaneers. Uh, they did lose Alex Kappa to the Cincinnati Bengals to a huge contract. But again, you can start bringing guys back if you're the Buccaneers. 
and how this reverberates through the NFL will be very interesting to see with the moves that other teams, especially in the NFC, the Green Bays and the San Francisco and the LA Rams and other teams make making moves to counteract what the Buccaneers are now doing with Tom Brady. Expected expect to see Rob Gronkowski back at some point. Again, guys like Sue, Leonard Fournette. It'd be interesting to see what the Buccaneers do with them. But tons and tons of free agency moves going on around the league. Khalil Mack traded to the LA, Char- the LA Chargers over the weekend. J.C. Jackson, the big cornerback for the Patriots, goes out to the Chargers as well. Teams are making moves. Jacksonville's made several moves on the first day of free agency, bringing in guys. The Jets have made some moves. The, uh, the next big domino to fall is where will Deshaun Watson end up? If you remember, Deshaun Watson was not uh, indicted by the grand jury in Houston last Friday, so there will be no criminal charges against him. Still don't know about the criminal, I mean the civil suits. Still has 22 civil suits. But again, from an NFL perspective and probably from most organizations' perspective, the teams that are in the quarterback business, i.e. lots of draft capital, look for those teams to make offers to the Houston Texans. And it sounds like Deshaun Watson's going to meet with some teams in the NFC this week, Carolina, New Orleans, potentially Seattle, be on the lookout for them. So I do not think you'll see Watson traded to the AFC. I think Houston will trade him to the NFC. Should have plenty of suitors in the NFC that still need quarterbacks. Uh, again, New Orleans, Carolina, potentially Seattle. Things, teams of those, uh, maybe, uh, you know, those are the probably the leading candidates in the clubhouse for Deshaun Watson. Again, it's probably going to take at least two number ones, maybe three, three number ones, maybe a player or two, depending on the situation, for the Texans to pull the trigger. But I do think you'll see something with the Texans here in the next seven days uh, to get Deshaun Watson out of Houston and get that uh, disaster over with, with all the things off the field there in Houston and Deshaun Watson is concerned. So that's probably the next big domino. Remember Carson Wentz traded from Washington or to Washington from Indianapolis. Um, again, a kind of a move that they needed to make. Big question is what are the Colts going to do at quarterback? They don't have anybody. Deshaun Watson's not going to be an option. Are they in the Jimmy Garoppolo business? Are there other guys that they could potentially make a trade for? Heard a little rumors about Gardner Minshew, maybe. Uh, very interesting to see what happens. Teddy Bridgewater signed with the Dolphins, so he's off the market. Um, so, again, be very interesting to see what a couple of these quarterback needy teams do um, with uh, the, the remaining spots. The musical chairs are kind of running out a little bit. Uh, to see what people are going to do. Is the Philadelphia Eagles going to get in the mix? Potentially being the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes. You do have Jalen Hurts, plus three number one draft picks this year. Mitchell Trubisky went to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Will be kind of an interesting move there. Can he resurrect his career as the starter and the heir apparent to Ben Roethlisberger? That actually could be a sneaky, decent move there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what uh, these other teams do. Will Christian, a guy like Christian McCaffrey get traded? You've got Jarvis Landry getting cut loose. you got Amari Cooper getting traded to the Cleveland Browns. So lots of moving parts, guys getting cut, restructured contracts, all that kind of good stuff. So it'll be a very entertaining week in the National Football League with free agency, roster moves, trades, uh, salary restructurings, and all that kind of good stuff. So stay tuned throughout the week. Um, as far as baseball goes, the lockout's over. 
The huge move so far this week. Freddie Freeman is unsigned with the Braves. And it looks like the Braves are not going to re-sign them. They've just traded for Matt Olson of the Oakland A's. Gave up four prospects for him. I don't know what the delay and what the contract demands of Freddie Freeman are. Um, but again, look for the Dodgers, Yankees to be in the mix there. you got plenty of other great players out still on the market free agency-wise. Chris Bryant. Um, you got guys like Anthony Rizzo, things like that. Yet another trade. Yankees tr finally trade Gary Sanchez and Gio Urshela to the Minnesota Twins for Josh Donaldson to play third base. So it'll be very interesting to see what the Yankees do from a perspective of uh, do they go after Freddie Freeman? Um, what kind of a, who makes the biggest offer? I'm really surprised Freddie Freeman's not taking a little bit of a discount to come back to Atlanta. He's been there for probably 12 years now. The face of the franchise. Maybe the Braves try to bring him back as well. Remember, there's going to be a universal DH. I don't know if Olsen can play another position. Maybe uh, maybe as a DH. Who knows? I doubt he's coming back to Atlanta, but just a big move by the Braves being proactive and making a trade for Matt Olsen. So I hate to see Freddie go because, again, he's the face of that franchise for the last decade, and they finally won a World Series last year in Atlanta. So... Be very interesting to see what, what happens. Um, the Rays down, again, spring training starting in both Florida and Arizona. Games start this coming up weekend. They're going to play about three weeks uh, into through, through March into the uh, first week of April. And they're going to start, I think, April 7th, something like that. And they will make up, the, they will play all 162 games. Again, universal DHs in both leagues now and all that stuff. So, again, a lot of free agency news in both baseball and the National Football League throughout this week. You'll see a lot of signings. You'll see some more trades. The uh, Cincinnati Reds are unloading guys left and right. Sonny Gray, Winkler, Suarez get dealt. So again, they're in the in the dump mode in Cincinnati already. So that's that's feel bad for those fans. But uh, very exciting week if you're a baseball and NFL free agency guy. All the moves that are going to be happening. So uh, let me give you a couple of selections that I like for the NCAA tournament. We're going to go in-depth, again, with Matt Zemick here in just a few minutes. We're going to break down each region. We're going to give you the key matchups. We're going to give you some surprises, some sleepers, coaching, officiating, uh, keys to look at in some of these teams. So Matt's very dialed in. We're going to talk a lot of West Coast. He, he knows all about the West Coast teams. Gonzaga, Arizona, the Mountain West, the WCC, Pac-12, we're going to go all over the country. Coaching hires, a lot of guys getting fired in the SEC. They're made a ton of moves in the, in the coaching ranks in the SEC. We'll go over those as well. So some games I like for the first two days of the NCAA tournament. I like Rutgers in the play-in game in Dayton against Notre Dame. Rutgers is plus one. Everybody, I like Providence over South Dakota State. Everybody thinks the Jack Rabbits are going to get it done. Providence, the Big East regular season champion. I like Providence minus two and a half. Iowa State against LSU. All the controversy, all the turmoil at LSU. Will Wade was fired after the SEC tournament. Uh, Iowa State coming out of the gauntlet of the Big 12. Very good, pretty under the radar team. I like Iowa State plus the four points against LSU. Virginia Tech, Texas. VTEC has to won the tournament to get it, won the ACC tournament to get in the NCAA tournament. Texas, Chris Beard, year one, 
A lot of transfers. I like Texas minus the one. I think you could have a tired Virginia Tech team. A lot of emotion over the weekend in Brooklyn, beating Duke, beating North Carolina to win the ACC tournament. Don't be surprised if they're a little flat come this first round. I like Texas, Chris Beard, minus the one in round one. And the last one I like is I like Murray State, minus the one and a half against San Francisco. The Dons haven't been in the tournament in quite some time. Been a long time. Many people think that the West Coast Conference has, you know, Gonzaga, St. Mary's. You got uh, San Francisco's in. I like Murray State, though. Murray State minus the one and a half. The Racers have a lot of tournament pedigree. Give me the Racers minus the one and a half against the Dons of San Francisco as we go through round one of the NCAA tournament. So a um, couple things that I, a couple leans. I would lean Davidson minus the one against Michigan State. Um, you have Ohio State in Loyola, Chicago. I would lean Ohio State there. They got a big score in Liddell. I like the uh, toughness in the, in the, in the, uh, of Ohio State coming out of the Big Ten there. Loyola not quite as good as they were last year with the new coach. Lost some of their guys. I do like I would go lean Ohio State there for my boy David Precise in Columbus. And uh, so there you have it. There's five or six games that I like for the first two rounds from a betting perspective. Uh, so again, Rutgers, Providence, Iowa State, Texas, and Murray State. Or who I like early there in the in the uh, first two rounds of the NCAA tournament. So, coming up next, Matt Zemek again, USA Today Trojan Wire. We're going to talk all things NCAA tournament. You will enjoy my chat with Matt Zemek, and we'll be right back with Matt right after this quick little commercial. We'll be back to the Powers on Sports podcast in just a moment. Now, a word from BetUS with March Madness in full swing with Selection Sunday. Right around the corner, NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, Major League Baseball, hopefully starting soon. We'll see about that. You need a sports book with integrity and longevity like BetUS. You may not know this, but BetUS has been pioneers in the sports book industry for almost three decades, thriving and paying their loyal customer base. BetUS.com. They have loads of bonuses. Join now or call 1-800-69-BETUS. That is 1-800-MY-BET-US. You will receive 125% of a sign-up bonus by using the bonus code POWERS22. They have re-up and referral bonuses as well. BetUS is known as America's favorite sports books for a lot of reasons. BetUS has all your NBA and NHL games, team and player props, PGA Tour events. We have the Masters coming up soon, March Madness. Anything you want to bet on here in the next couple of months, you can bet on through BetUS. They have a great online casino that has hundreds of games and in a race book that has all of your horse track betting options. They have every bet type imaginable, and the Sharp BetUS mobile platform is easy with full betting options. Follow my lead and get your phone, online, and social sports betting partner with integrity and longevity like I did. BetUS. You bet, you win, and most importantly, you get paid. Bet US and remember my our special your special promo code powers twenty two. Bet US where the games begin. We'll be back to the Powers on Sports podcast in just a moment. Now a word from Titan Home Lending, folks. Interest rates are rising. They are on the rise due to some inflationary issues, world events, and such. So if you are in the market for a home. 
looking to buy, looking to uh, invest in an investment property, second home purchase, beach home, vacation type home. Now is the time to get your rate locked in. Reach out to me at Titan Home Lending. Anywhere in the state of Florida, I can help you. So if you're looking for a place in Key West, in Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, Pensacola, anywhere in between, reach out to me at Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. Let's get you pre-approved for your home purchase. Also, if you'd like to refinance your home, if your interest rate is in the fives or sixes or high fours, now might be a great time to look at your options of whether to refinance would be beneficial to you financially. So again, reach out to me at Titan Home Lending, Jason Powers, 205-790-1404. Feel free to call or text me anytime. I'd love the opportunity to help you anywhere in the state of Florida. Now back to the Powers on Sports podcast. All right, welcome to the Powers on Sports podcast. We've got a great interview with you. We're going to talk to Matt Zemick of Trojan Wire, part of the USA Today uh, Sports Network. We're going to talk all things March Madness. The bracket has just been put out. We also have some other huge breaking news that I'm going to get Matt's opinion on. That kind of of only one person that could probably uh, supersede the the thrill of, of Sunday on March Madness. This person did it, and we'll talk about that here in just a second. So um, we're going to go through the brackets with you. We're going to give you some tips on each bracket. Uh, we'll give you a couple sleepers, and we'll kind of give you just some general thoughts about some stuff around the uh, tournament selection. So welcome back to the podcast, Matt. Merry Christmas, Jason. And, of course, uh, you know, covering the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as you do, it's really, <laughs> it's really double Christmas. Yeah, like it's two Christmases in one. You get to unwrap the bracket, yes. and you get Tom Brady under the tree as well on the same evening. I wow, mean, isn't that some good news? Of all things, the only guy that could over over uh, over overshine the the bracket on, is about what seven o'clock, seven fifteen, or whatever time it was. We get the word from our buddy TJ Reeves that Mister Brady is coming back. Brady in a bracket, one of the most memorable sports days uh, in, in your career covering sports. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Uh, before we get to the bracket, a couple of uh, interesting uh, coaching hires. Whenever you and I talk, there's always coaching coaching chatter to talk about. What would you think of the move of Mike White leaving Florida and taking over for Tom Crean at Georgia? Yeah, that I mean, not a shocker that Mike White, um, you know, pursued, quote unquote, pursued other opportunities, because that's what that was all about. You know, he he knew that he was under fire, so he just looked for an exit. That's not particularly surprising. Now, I did think that White was going to get one more year, but I think it's, uh, it's it's clear that, you know, Florida did want to move on. And so there was a mutual uh, agreement there. Yeah, right. Um, I think that Mike White being at Georgia isn't isn't a, a bad fit for him that you get lower expectations. And, you know, if you can just get Georgia to the NCAA tournament or if you're even on the NCAA tournament bubble at Georgia on a regular basis. Yeah. You know, that's OK, especially with Kirby Smart crushing it in football. Like sure. people are not going to be upset if, if, if Georgia is a number one seed in the NIT. Like that, that's not going to have the locals upset. Now you you are expected to make the NCAA tournament every now and then, right? But you don't have to make it every year. So in terms of the expectations, yes. But going from Florida to Georgia, 
that, you know, I mean, I know that, you know, in football, that's where the rivalry really matters, but these schools are just rivals in general. They're rivals in gymnastics. They're rivals in lots of different sports. They're just rivals period. Sure. So, you know, and, and there are other sec job openings, Missouri, uh, and, and of course LSU as well. Did he have to pick Georgia? So in terms of the rivalry angle, that that's the curious part of it. But the fact that he sought another uh, landing spot and made a downward move, um, that you know that's not terrifically surprising because he was obviously under a lot of pressure uh, in Gainesville, uh, and I think it's revealing that you know he didn't want to try to stick it out. Uh, that he felt that that making that move, getting out of there, was the better move at this point in his career. I don't necessarily think that's a miscalculation, but I do think that, you know, the, he leaves Florida with business unfinished. Sure. And we'll see how how much he learns and grows uh, from this particular experience, because one thing we can definitely agree on is that Mike White did not recruit at the level needed to keep Florida at the Billy Donovan standard. So, right. you know, that that's a lesson for him. And so I guess at Georgia, you know, that, that, that is something to watch and we'll see if Mike White grows as a head coach. And, and one other thing to say about this, Jason, is that, you know, you'll, you'll recall that Luke Walton uh, took the Los Angeles Laker head coaching job without extensive uh, head coaching experience. So he took over the Lakers at a very young age. And it just brings up the larger point that if you, you know, you might want that Cadillac coaching job and, you know, Florida after Billy Donovan was a Cadillac coaching job in college basketball. So Mike White might've really wanted that job, but was he fully ready for that job? So like for, for, for younger coaches who want that plum job, you might not necessarily, it might not necessarily serve your career in its best interest to take that great job, even if an athletic director or an NBA uh, uh, president or general manager offers it to you, at an early age, you just might need to grow as a coach. And that job is going to be there at some point later down the line. It might be when you're age 45. It might be when you're age 50. It might not be until you're age 55. But if you're 35, 38, 40 years old, and Mike White was a fairly young coach when he went to Florida, you don't necessarily have to take that job right away. It will be there later. So like if you're a young coach, you need to be sure that you know the ins and outs, that you know exactly how to crush that Cadillac coaching job. That is a very instructive lesson to all young coaches trying to wait, make their way up the ladder. You don't have to make the meteoric climb right away. The job can be there at a later point in time when you're truly ready. It's yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, when you're when you're a young coach and you've had some success at a lower tier program, because he, I think he came from like Louisiana Tech, I believe. Yeah. Um, yep. um, you know. It's tough to say no when the SEC, when a big program in the SEC comes where you have the resources, you're getting paid a very good salary and all that stuff. It's hard to say no when you're in the ego business of of college coaching, whether it's football or basketball. No doubt. No doubt. Were you surprised that were you surprised that LSU fired Will Wade when they did? I mean, he'd been under all kind of scrutiny for several years now and they finally the ncaa finally delivers the uh letter of allegations and violations he gets fired basically the day after they lose in the sec tournament they let him coach in the sec tournament which if you're going to fire him the day after why wouldn't you fire him before the sec tournament i was a little surprised 
that they not that they fired him in general because he needed to be fired, but that they didn't let him coach out the year if you let him go this far and didn't fire him before the SEC tournament. Yeah, I mean, the, the larger point here, Jason, is that, like, did LSU not expect the notice of allegations to be really, really bad? Right. That's, that's the thing that gets me. Like, what, what, what was LSU anticipating? They thought they were just get a slap on the wrist, just thought they would get a measured response. I mean, it was always clear that Will Wade was in deep, that he was in big trouble. Yeah. So, you know, no, wait, no one at LSU anticipated this? Because, you know, obviously it fired Will Wade because uh, the notice of allegations was extremely bad. Uh, but um, so, you know, if, if, if it was extremely bad, just where was the foresight on this? Where was no one seemed to be thinking ahead, planning ahead. And let's remember with Auburn in the NCAA tournament as a number two seed with a definite chance to make the final four. Let's remember what Auburn did a year ago. Self-imposed. Right, uh, an NCAA tournament ban. That's how you do it. When you're in, when you're in trouble, you you're proactive. You're forward thinking. If you have to eat a year, you know you eat that year at the beginning. You mm -hmm. don't eat the year at the end. You eat it at the beginning because you, that tells the NCAA. It tells other relevant parties that okay, you're you are really accepting the punishment. You're swallowing your medicine. Um, and LSU looks really bad doing this at the end of a season, much lower chance that LSU is going to get leniency right. as a result. Imagine if LSU had fired Will Wade in November, in October, right. and, and, and then self-imposed a one-year ban. Like that would have LSU in a much better position relative to future NCAA penalties. But now the way all this came down doesn't have nearly the same protection especially when you had the smoking gun that was already out there of the FBI tape. It's not like the, the FBI tape just appeared. I mean, this, the FBI tape's been around for a lot, long time. So that's the part that's even more, I mean, you knew the NCAA at some point was going to lay the hammer down to LSU when you had that tape that was out there. Absolutely. And maybe it's just a case of, well, hey, LSU and Will Wade were able to go to a bunch of NCAA tournaments over the past few years. So maybe someone in Baton Rouge just thought, well, we'll just let this cycle play out until it comes to its natural conclusion. But but that what that means though is like no high end coach is going to go to LSU right now, right? Because right. you're looking at like three seasons that are going to be tremendously uh, handicapped. The scholarship so, production. Yeah, LSU really stuff. painted yep. itself in a corner there. All right, let's get to the tournament. Just uh, as, as you're listening to this podcast, you, you, you've probably already filled out some of your brackets, maybe not all the way. So we're going to try to give you some tips in each in each region, some notes, nuggets about teams, players, that kind of stuff as you head into the, the final stages here before Thursday uh, get, get started here. Just a couple of general themes about the selection process from your perspective, Matt. Any big surprises just theme-wise from the, from the committee? Well, it, it's interesting, Jason, in that, the biggest story to me in terms of uh, uh, inclusion and exclusion was a team that really was off the radar, but it was revealed that became surprisingly close to getting in. So Dayton, it was revealed on the CBS's selection show that Dayton was the very first team out. And if any right. team has a COVID-19 problem, Dayton would be first in line 
as a replacement. So wait a minute, Dayton ahead of Oklahoma and Texas A&M and uh, the other teams that were left out, SMU as well. Dayton was the first team out. I mean, like Dayton, you know, lost to lost to Richmond in the Atlantic 10 semifinals. Right. Didn't seem to be anywhere near uh, the at-large cut line. Everyone felt that, uh, you know, when I say everyone, bracketologists were pretty unanimous in saying Dayton needed to win the A-10 tournament. But right. Dayton didn't even get to the Atlantic 10 final right. on Sunday and yet was still the first team out. So what does that tell you? It tells you that if Dayton had beaten Richmond in the Atlantic 10 semifinals and had merely gotten to the A-10 final, didn't even have to win that. If Dayton had simply gotten to the final yep. of the Atlantic 10 title game, it would have been in. So and there were some very interesting calculations here. The other thing, before you get jump in, Jason, Virginia Tech won the ACC tournament, right. beat Duke, the heavyweight, and yet was an 11 seed. So that right. tells you that Virginia Tech would have been out right. if it had not beaten Duke. So the committee really valued Dayton a lot higher than Virginia Tech. So that is an eye grabber. Yeah, that, that to me, that was one of the themes. It was Sunday, the last day of the selection, you had two bid stealers, Richmond and Virginia Tech, won bids. They weren't getting into the tournament at all if they don't win their conference tournament. And like you said, Richmond keeps Dayton out. And if Dayton would have gotten into the tournament, they would have most likely had a home game in the play-in game in Dayton on Tuesday or Wednesday night. That's right. And we've seen that before. Dayton played Boise State several years ago in the first four, and Dayton did win that game. So uh, it does raise the point that, you know, if Dayton's on the bubble and is very near the first four, well, Dayton gets a home game. And that is a that's a thorny little uh, problem for the committee whenever that scenario emerges. Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing the committee can do about that part of it. I don't blame. I mean, I'm not can't blame anybody for that because the reason Dayton is the reason Dayton is the site for these home for these play-in games is because it's pretty centrally located around the country, so teams can go east or west depending on who wins and loses and when their next game is. So that's why it's Dayton, and it's very centrally located for people to travel and all that stuff. So you know, you ain't nothing. To- they also get a great walk-up crowd from the community, which has fully Thank- embraced the first four since. Absolutely, and that that plays a big part of it as well, no doubt about it. All right. So let's um, any 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 surprises? Were you surprised that uh, that Baylor was the last number one seed and maybe not a a Tennessee, maybe not an Auburn, one of those kind of teams? Were you surprised Baylor, who lost I think pretty early in the Big Twelve quarterfinals, I believe, was still the fourth one seed? Uh, not not particularly surprised, and I and I really have no problem with that. You know, uh, I think Baylor dropped below Kansas yep. as the fourth one seed because you have Jonathan Chamwa Chachua you know, they're forward out for the season yep. and Baylor has been dogged by injuries. So, so the, I think the committee looked at the injury element and, and downgraded Baylor yep. shipped, shipped the bears East. So I actually think they got that one, right. My, my big thing, uh, you know, it, my, my big problem with the committee, and this is my big problem every year. It's the, the, the bracketing part of forming the NCAA tournament field. Yeah. That the selection, you know, bubble inclusion and exclusion, you know, taking one bubble team over another, you know, it's a flawed, one flawed team versus another flawed team. The bubble teams, you know, have can only blame themselves for the, the games they didn't win, not doing yeah. enough. So that's an overrated point of outrage. Um, and then the seating, I think seating was fine. I mean, I, I thought that 
Tennessee should have been a two. Right. And uh, Duke should have been a three. Um, I was but, surprised. But, Mich- I was surprised Michigan was not in the play-in game as opposed to yeah, Indiana. I think Michigan deserved to go to Dayton. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you need to look at what Indiana did. And Indiana, of course, beat Illinois after beating uh, Michigan. Down so, yeah, seven. You think down you seventeen think, to Michigan. Down right. seventeen to Michigan. Yep. So you would think that Indiana did more work than Michigan in terms of earning a buy and bypassing Dayton. But anyway, the, the, the thing that the committee does horribly every year, it's not so much the seeding, it's not so much the selection of bubble teams, it's the bracketing. And so the, the bracketing is always not given nearly as much time as it should be given. Now, one smaller bracketing problem is that UConn is a five seed. Now, a five seed is not a protected seed. Right. Top four seeds are protected seeds. If you are a top four seed, you should get the favorable geographical placement. But UConn, as a five, gets to stay home in Buffalo, right near the campus. And Arkansas is the four, which has to go to Buffalo. So you have a higher seed is basically going to wind up playing a road game against a lower seed. So that is lazy bracketing. And college basketball historians such as yourself will remember that in 2014, UConn was a seven seed and yet got Buffalo for the first weekend and then Madison Square Garden in New York for the Sweet 16 the Elite Eight. So UConn was a seven seed, but was treated like a one seed in terms of being placed very close to home. So it just shows how lazy the committee is in bracketing. And the other really big bracketing problem I have with the committee is look at all the rematches, which were potentially set up in the Elite Eight. Arizona could play Tennessee. They met during the regular season. Gonzaga could play Duke or Texas Tech. They both played in the regular season. Gonzaga lost to Duke. Gonzaga beat Texas Tech. You had so many different rematches in the Elite Eight. And that's just lazy because this is a national tournament. And the charm of the NCAA tournament, it's a lot like the World Series before interleague play. You know, the American League and National League were complete mysteries to each other. You had two completely different sets of ground rules and styles. So in a 1985 or 87 World Series, the two teams had never met. So everything was fresh and new. The NCAA tournament should be like that. You know, and so when you when you map out the seed list and the bracketing. All right. So a one seed, you know, the strongest one seed against the weakest two seeds. So one versus eight on the seed list. Your weakest one seed against your strongest two seed, four versus five. Right. Let's say there's a rematch. You slide the seed list, you know, you slide the teams by one on the seed list so that you get a a fresh matchup. So the committee had no problem doing it the right way with Baylor and Kentucky. They did not play during the regular season. They were the the one and two seeds in the East. But with the other matchups, like there's just no reason to have Duke and Gonzaga playing each other again. You put Duke uh, in in a separate region. You put Duke with Arizona, right? That, that would, you know, a matchup that hasn't occurred, and, and you just flip flop. You you flip flop the matchups. Uh, you you put Villanova with Gonzaga. Uh, but it, Matt, as you and I know, a lot of these it's things. It's so lazy. It's lazy to not 
to be bracketing all these rematches when you can just very easily avoid them. It, it is. I, I, I get you 100%. But as you know, this is a business for CBS and Turner and all those people. And they want it. They want matchups for television, potential final eight Gonzaga versus coach Kane is last year, you know, Kentucky and heavy, you know, potential heavyweights you want, you got, I mean, so you got some, some of that lore that you, that you do for TV and there's matchups. For example, Auburn playing Jacksonville state, those schools are probably two hours apart. And I know it's a two fifteen matchup, but nobody probably cares. But again, you, that was on purpose. I can promise you that's going to get more people to Greenville, South Carolina, because it's Auburn versus Jacksonville state, as opposed if it was Auburn versus Delaware, things like that, Delaware and, and Villanova, those are close proximity to each other. Those were, that's a matchup that was for TV and things like that. So, and I'm with you, you're right. They do get lazy, but sometimes they fall in love with the, the allure of the television matchup. And, and don't think CBS probably doesn't have a little bit of influence on some of this stuff to some degree behind the scenes. No doubt. I mean, like, that is how it operates. It just isn't how it should operate. And and the the the, the nuance here, I mean, now, you know, Gonzaga Duke in March. All right, you know, like that game's going to get monster ratings if we get to it. But you know, like you can find monster rating games, I think, and still honor the principle of not having rematches uh, in the regular sure. season. Like you know, Kentucky Baylor. That is a properly seated and bracketed matchup. But yes. like the the one versus two matchup, which I think would get really big ratings, but the committee did, sought to not pursue Arizona, Kentucky. Uh, that 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 could have been a one versus two, uh, but the committee didn't didn't put that that one seed and that two seed together in the same region. But like that would get very high ratings, right. uh, higher ratings than I think Baylor, Kentucky uh, would get because you know Arizona's rise to uh, re and return to prominence under Tommy Lloyd. So I, I just think, you know, and, and Duke, whoever Duke's playing is in an elite be, eight game, yeah. that's going to get well, for example, ratings. And of for, course, one yeah. has to point out, one has to point out, Jason, by having Duke versus Gonzaga in the elite eight, that means you don't get that in the final four, Correct. which you, which you also want to keep track of, but you're entirely right that TV does dictate a, a substantial amount of this process. And we're, we're kidding ourselves if we if we think that's not true because 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 again with we, we mentioned duke because coach k is on his way out you could have coach k and tom Izzo in the second round that's going to be a saturday uh, it's a, i don't know if that's a saturday i think that's a saturday game saturday game that could be i mean that'll be prime time saturday night humongous rating if it's duke michigan state you know as an example or ucla indiana is a potential second round matchup so you, these are done, these are bracket, your bracketing concepts are, are, are done, again, partially for some TV as well, because they want ratings. They're paying a ton of money for advertising and all that stuff. And they want to know people are going to be in the building too. So when the game is in Greenville, they want to try to have two teams relatively close to Greenville to bring some people. So, you know, especially with last year, with not having fans and all that stuff, I'm sure the NCAA took a bath financially, which we get it. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's just part of part of, of running a business of this tournament. The tournament has gotten so big over the years. Unfortunately, these kind of thoughts that creep into it as opposed to the more pure way to do it of trying to get the best game and try not to have rematches until you absolutely have to. No question. And, and, and 
Coach K against Tom Izzo, like there's just zero question that CBS wanted that. Prime and time, that, yeah. that is that is a setting up the, the tournament for television purposes. All right, let's get to the brackets. We'll just go through each bracket. I'll give you a couple tidbits on each bracket, and then you can give me some thoughts and all that kind of good. All right, let's go. Let's start out West. Gonzaga's the one seed. Potential second round matchup with Boise State, which Leon Rice used to coach with Mark Few. So, again, kind of another one of those little bracketing tidbits that's potentially, you know, you got uh, first round, you got Boise State and Memphis with Penny Hardaway. Just your thoughts on the top half of that bracket. Yeah, so, you know, I've, I follow uh, Boise State out here in the West. You know, I'm based yeah. in Phoenix and watch plenty of uh, Mountain West basketball. And the thing with Boise State, but the, first off, the Broncos have a great defense. But secondly, their defense gets tougher and better in the final five minutes of a game. If you followed anything with Boise State this season, it's just it's a crunch time clutch defense. It's a defense that gets not just stops, but it gets the biggest stops of the game very reliably Boise State's held a lot of opponents under 60 points per game I mean did it against uh, San Diego State in the Mountain West Tournament Championship game and that's an event that San Diego State has historically owned but Boise State was able to turn the tide it's a really tough that's a really tough Boise State team now of course Memphis is riding the wave and uh, credit to Penny Hardaway you know he coached horribly the first few months of the season, lost to Georgia, yep. lost to Ole Miss, yep. lost to Tulane, lost to East Carolina, got it turned around. See, so that that you know that that team was at rock bottom, and Penny was able to lift it out of the doldrums and yep. was able to beat Houston twice. That's why the Tigers are in the yeah. NCAA tournament. And yep. I don't think anyone should be downgrading Memphis for failing to beat Houston a third time no. in the AAC final. Like you knew that Houston was going to be sick and tired of losing to Memphis and that that game was going to matter more to Houston. So no one should be downgrading Memphis uh, based on that. So, you know, Boise state's tough. Memphis is more skilled. Uh, I, you know, I would give a slight lean to Memphis in that matchup. Yep. Uh, Dangerous team there, Arkansas, you got, you know, Musselman was at Nevada when they made those runs in in Nevada and he had a really good run last year at Arkansas to the final eight, really good tournament coach. So look out for Arkansas there. Um, bottom half of that bracket, I think a team that could potentially win, you know, Texas Tech, you got the bottom half, you got Duke, you got Michigan State and Davidson, that first round game, very sneaky game. Michigan State gets all the hype with Izzo, but they're, they've, they've really limped to the finish line here. Davidson lost on Sunday to Richmond, which allowed Richmond to get in, but a very interesting matchup there, uh, Michigan State-Davidson. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a game for the basketball junkies. Tom Izzo, and let, let's, you know, for, for people who don't know, Bob McKillop is one of yes. the greatest coaches, not just in college basketball, but sports. And nobody's ever heard of. That nobody's ever heard of. Yep, I mean, he's Steph Curry. He's the guy who coached Steph Curry in college. How many people on the street, you know, if you, if you said, who coached Steph Curry in college, how many people would come up with Bob McKillop? Right. Not a majority, I don't think. So he's like this anonymous great coach. And I want just want to say if if Bob McKillop 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, had ever wanted to get a job at let's say North Carolina or NC Kentucky and one of those uh, big yeah, at, at various blue blood or pr- prominent programs, he would have crushed it there. Yeah. Uh, zero doubt in my mind, but he he has wanted to stay at Davidson, you know, out of the limelight, just likes coaching 
at a comparatively smaller school. Yeah. Let's remember that Davidson had been in the Southern Conference when Steph Curry was there. Yeah. In the late uh, 2000s, Davidson's now graduated up to the Atlantic 10. Yeah. And the Atlantic 10 is where Xavier was making bunches of NCAA tournaments and sweet 16s yeah. uh, under Sean Miller, under Thad Mata. Uh, the, the Atlantic 10s were St. Joseph's and Phil Martelli Very had a number conference. one seed good and conference. made the Elite Eight in 2004, the Jameer Nelson team. Yeah. The Atlantic 10 was an excellent conference. I mean, John Chaney and Temple yeah. were in the Atlantic 10 conference for decades. So Bob McKillop takes Davidson from the little – SoCon, so Southern Shaka Conference. Smart, Shaka Smart and VCU. Yep, absolutely. He takes Davidson from the Little Guy Conference, the SoCon, up to the Atlantic 10, and he's owning it. Yep. He's leading that conference. So it tells you how great a coach Bob McKillop is. Wanted to give your listeners yeah. one of the Powers on Sports podcast a little bit of extra appreciation absolutely. for the career and, and uh, credentials of Bob McKillop. Now, sneak, so the, the matchup against Go Tom ahead. Izzo, you know, Michigan State seems to have found something. Michigan State really played a lot better at the Big Ten tournament than it had during the regular season. Uh, the really big key, Tyson Walker, uh, their, their guard, finally seemed to play with a level of confidence and clarity, which had been missing. And if you talk to Michigan State's Michigan State experts, uh, one of them is Deshaun Tate, who I know has appeared on He's appeared on my shows. He's probably appeared on your shows. So he's a Michigan State expert. He told me earlier in the year, turnovers, turnovers, turnovers was the huge Achilles heel for Michigan State. Well, Michigan State committed very few turnovers in that win over Wisconsin in the Big Big Ten quarterfinals. And so that's Tyson Walker learning how to play guard and handling the ball so much better. So I think if Tyson Walker continues – on his upward trajectory and he plays a solid game. He doesn't need to score a ton, but if he commits few turnovers, facilitates the offense and Michigan state limits turnovers, it's going to be very hard for Davidson to beat Michigan state. It's a tricky game for me. I think it could go, could go either way. You got Alabama versus the Rutgers Notre Dame winner. I think if Rutgers can get to Alabama, that could be a tricky game for Alabama because Alabama lives and dies on the threes. You know, Alabama beat Gonzaga earlier in the year. They've had some huge wins, but I mean, when they're shooting the ball, well, they beat anybody in the country. A little surprised that they were a six seed. I think this is a spot Rutgers could potentially, if they get through Notre Dame, could upset Alabama. Rutgers is a rugged team, good guard play. You got a good coach. I think it's, you know, it's upset alert there. If Rutgers can get to Alabama, but I also think if Alabama can beat Rutgers, they could turn around and win a couple games in this tournament, get to a, an elite eight because they they're that good as well. I know you've yep. seen Gonzaga. I know you've seen Alabama Gonzaga early in the year when Alabama beat Gonzaga pretty good. Alabama beat Gonzaga by nine points in Seattle, so technically a neutral site game since right. Gonzaga is located in Spokane, but essentially a road game in Seattle. Right. Alabama won by nine, and and it, it was a decisive win. Like Gonzaga was never particularly close right down the stretch Alabama won that game comfortably so you have an Alabama team which at its best can beat Gonzaga in Seattle can beat Baylor Alabama beat Baylor so Alabama's beaten two number one seeds also beat Tennessee sure now and and has just a pile of awesome high-end wins Alabama beat Houston before Houston lost its star player Marcus Sasser to injury now Houston's a five seed 
if Sasser had not gotten hurt, Houston's probably a two or a three. Right. Uh, so Alabama has like four wins over top 10 level teams. If you include Tennessee as a top mm-hmm. 10 team. Absolutely. So Alabama at its best is amazing. Alabama at its worst lost to Georgia, yeah. lost to Missouri, just lost to Vanderbilt uh, in the preliminary round of the SEC tournament. So you just, you don't know what version of Alabama you're going to get. And that SEC uh, early round game against Vanderbilt, Alabama led by 13 with about 12 minutes left uh, and, and then collapsed down the stretch. So even within the same game, you, you get these incredible mood swings from Alabama. So you don't know what version of Alabama you're going to get. And, and, and I have given up trying to predict uh, what version of Alabama is going to show up. Uh, Rutgers, Notre Dame, that first four game, uh, you know, Rutgers has a great home court advantage at the rack. Uh, the Rutgers Activity Center, that it has a sponsored name, but people people know that building yeah. in right. Piscataway, New Jersey as yeah. the rack. And Rutgers yeah. is great in it. But you get Rutgers outside the rack, different teams. So I like Notre Dame over Rutgers. And then Notre Dame, Alabama, you know, football school in a basketball yes. game, that would be that would be a pretty neat matchup. And let's let's give credit to Mike Bray. Notre Dame had been horrible the past two seasons and Irish fans were losing patience and I don't blame them either. It was another one of those scenarios where where a guy who's been at a place for two decades, you know, finally seems to run out of steam. Everything looks and feels stale and it's, it's a natural instinct to say, you know, we need a new face. We need a new guy. We need a new leader. Mike Bray getting Notre Dame back to the NCAA tournament. That's a very, very impressive feat for him. And the sleeper team in this region for me is Texas Tech. They got all bunch of they got a bunch of new players, transfer portal guys. They are very good. They they played very very well in the Big Twelve, arguably the best conference in America. Um, that's a sleeper team as a three seed there uh, in the in, in that part of the bracket. Who do you like coming out of the West, Matt? I like Gonzaga, and I, uh, I will note that. Um, the bracket is set up for an exact rematch of the 2019 West Regional Final. Top-seeded Gonzaga against third-seeded Texas Tech. That is exactly what we had in 2019. Yep. Not just not just Gonzaga playing Texas Tech, but the exact the seeds were exactly the same. Texas Tech was a three in 2019 uh, when it went to the national title game, and Gonzaga and Texas Tech they did play earlier this this season. Uh, a neutral site game in December in Phoenix and Gonzaga won that game handily. So I think Texas tech plays Gonzaga a lot closer this time around, but I do think that Gonzaga still finds the answers because Texas tech, we've seen the red Raiders the past few weeks really struggle to score. Texas tech scored two points in the final nine minutes and 48 seconds of its loss at Oklahoma state uh, just before the big 12 tournament. And then uh, was lucky to beat Oklahoma 56-55 in the Big 12 semis. So even if Texas Tech does a better job defending Gonzaga, it's still going to be tough for the Red Raiders to score enough to win. So Gonzaga goes back to the Final Four. Yeah, I think Chet Chet Holmgren from from Gonzaga is the difference here. The versatility he's got inside, outside. He's a shot blocker. 
Um, you know, he's pretty thin, but again, he's, he's done a great job this year. And few, few does a great job often on the offensive end of the court. Gonzaga is probably one of the top five offensive, offensive efficiency teams in the country. They got players, they got wing players, they got guards, Nemhard at guard. It's just a stabilizer for them. He, he gets them in their sets, gets them the right shots. And then you got Holmgren in the middle there. Who's, who's, who's definitely going to be a force for Gonzaga. No doubt. And, uh, and and just one thing to say about Gonzaga is that when you look at Tommy Lloyd at Arizona, yep. you realize that he was uh, you know at Mark Few's side for two decades. You see the similarities in how Arizona and Gonzaga play. You see the Mark Few influence in how uh, Tommy Lloyd coaches Arizona, where their half-court sets, every action is purposeful. Nothing's wasted, and they're always – finding the angles to get right to the basket. That's a strong unifying theme between Gonzaga and Arizona. Yeah. We're going to go to the South next. A quick thought on just, uh, you brought up Arizona, the, the dominance, not the dominance, but the reemergence of the teams out West this year. Very impressive. Gonzaga, Arizona, UCLA's had a good year. You have the mountain West teams. You got a team like San Francisco. You have a team from teams from the West coast conference, St. Mary's, very much reemergence of the West Coast basketball is a definite, definite theme here in this tournament, especially a team like San Francisco that's been so long and not getting to the tournament. And now they're a 10 seed. Yeah, it's San Francisco's first NCAA tournament in 24 years since 1998. And that's something that the West Coast Conference really needed. The West Coast Conference needed to have a season in which it wasn't just Gonzaga and St. Mary's. So St. San Francisco bring something newer and deeper to the WCC. And then you have the Mountain West getting four teams into the field. Now, you know, the Mountain West uh, was a, a, it was a powerhouse conference. You could legitimately call it a powerhouse conference 11 years ago in 2011, when you had the Jimmer Fredette BYU team, you know, this was when BYU was still in the Mountain West and you had Kawhi Leonard in San Diego State. Mm -hmm. So the Jimmer Fredette BYU team was a three seed, and the uh, Kawhi Leonard San Diego State team was a two seed. So the Mountain West was exceptionally good uh, that year, 2011. No, not quite as good as 2011 uh, this year in 2022, but getting four teams in and getting Wyoming uh, back into the NCAA tournament, it speaks to the depth uh, that's found in the, the Mountain West. Now, the Pac-12 did not have a great year. The Pac-12 was top-heavy. It was just Arizona, UCLA, and USC in the NCAA tournament. But the teams that are in the field, especially Arizona, have a great shot to go to the Final Four. So, uh, you know, there's depth in the West in terms of the Mountain West and the WCC. Not a lot of depth in the Pac-12, but you have a home run threat uh, with Arizona. In In the South region, a game that gets my attention in the in round one, Loyola Chicago and Ohio State, just the gritty guttiness of Loyola Chicago win the win the uh, uh, Missouri Valley again with uh, Drew Valentine as their first year coach. Moser goes to Oklahoma, so they new coach, new bunch of new players. But again, Loyola Chicago still getting it done in the in the uh, Missouri Valley. A challenging matchup for Ohio State in round one with their with the balance of Loyola Chicago. So Ohio State's the seven, Loyola's the 10, but this is going to be one of those rare matchups, Jason, in which the lower seed is likely to be the betting favorite at tip-off time. I think most people who fill out a bracket are going to take Loyola 
in this game because Ohio State's been stale this season. It's EJ Liddell and not a whole lot else. Yeah. Uh, there have been some injuries at Ohio State, but just in terms of five guys on the floor, the Buckeyes are not a complete team. It's it's usually Liddell and one or two other guys supporting him, whereas Loyola is really a five as one team. Like there's no superstar, but you have five players working really well together. An important note, Marquise Kennedy uh, was a key cog for this Loyola team. He was injured for a good part of the season, especially February, but Loyola got him back just in time for the Missouri Valley tournament. And Loyola was extremely impressive in the, uh, in the Missouri Valley tournament. You know, Loyola gave up, I believe, over 100 points to Northern Iowa in an overtime game at the end of February. I think I think gave up 87 in regulation, but over 100, uh, including the overtime. Right. That was without Marquise Kennedy. That, so that tell, and then, and then uh, Loyola gave up roughly half as many points. Uh, under 50 uh, to Northern Iowa in the Missouri Valley tournament. So night and day difference. And that tells you how much Marquise Kennedy means to the Loyola team. So Loyola is whole and Ohio State's not whole. And I think that's a good succinct way of expressing why Loyola is the clear choice in that game. I think Tennessee's got a pretty good route to the Sweet 16, potentially Colorado State or Michigan in round two. I like ten, obviously Tennessee is is flying right now after coming through here down here in Tampa this weekend and winning the SEC tournament played really well with under Rick Barnes the guards they got a very diverse uh, roster they they play a lot of guys they got some young guards they've got some big guys they got some power I like Tennessee a lot can Rick Barnes finally get the monkey off his bat he's not not had the most tournament success Tennessee's an interesting team as a three seed a lot of people thought. They potentially could have been the fourth number one seed or at worst a two seed with what they did in the SEC, but they end up being a three seed there with Villanova, Ohio State, and that bottom end of the – they're in the Arizona bracket as well. Yeah, I mean, I I don't get it. The Tennessee beat Kentucky twice. You know, the the win over Kentucky in the SEC semifinals was the second win over Kentucky, and this time it was on a neutral floor, not at home. And then Tennessee wins the SEC tournament – for the first time since 1979, uh, that doesn't get Tennessee a two seed. And, and you have Duke playing in you know a very, very down ACC this year. And yet Duke still gets the higher seed. I mean, so what does that tell you? It means that, you know, Co- Coach K, you know, got the benefit of the doubt in terms of the seeding line. One could argue, though, that Duke had been uh, sent to West with the Zags. Maybe not isn't the best setup for them and that Tennessee which already beat Arizona earlier this season, maybe Tennessee with Arizona is a, is a better matchup for the Vols. Um, so, but, but the problem here is that Tennessee has to play Villanova uh, as the two seed uh, right. in a potential right. sweet 16 game. So ten, I mean, Tennessee's opening weekend bracket is great, but uh, the, the second weekend bracket right. is, right. is pretty difficult. And so the Tennessee being seated third, I think there were better paths and better opportunities. Like if Tennessee had been put as the two in the East in Baylor's bracket, um, you know, that, that might've given uh, the Vols a better path to their first ever final four. So ultimately I don't think Tennessee was done too many favors. The first weekend's fine, but the second weekend wasn't. Sleeper team in this sleeper team in this bracket for me might be Houston. 
very good. I mean, Kelvin Sampson's done a really good job at Houston. You know, he got in all that trouble in Indiana and all that stuff, but he's done a great job at Houston. A potential showdown in the second down, second round with Illinois. You got a battle of big men. You got Cope, Cokeburn for uh, Coburn for Illinois against that rugged Houston squad. They're always been a rugged team, especially defensively. Houston, if, if Houston can score, Houston can go could potentially give Arizona a game because Arizona's got some bigs. But if Houston can score, they've always had the ability to play defense. Yeah, I think there is a real opportunity for Houston here, even without Marcus Sasser, because Houston yep. is such an effort team. And uh, when you look at Illinois, I mean, Illinois is a very erratic team. Now, Illinois can be can be really good when Alfonso Plummer, the transfer from Utah, is hitting three pointers. I mean, he he can Alfonso Plummer's like a, a collegiate version of Vinnie Johnson you know, the microwave from the Detroit Pistons and the, right. and the bad boys in the late 1980s. I mean, Alfonso Plummer is a Vinnie Johnson type who can, you know, he'll, he'll just hit like three, three pointers in a couple minutes. You know, he'll, he'll personally give you like a nine, two run. Uh, when he's hitting, that's when Illinois is extremely difficult to beat, but what, Plummer comes and goes. And really a lot of Illini players, including uh, guard Andre Curbelo, uh, yep. Very inconsistent. I mean, you, the, the, now the ceiling is high, but yep. the floor is low and kind of much like Alabama. There's just so much variance between the best and the worst versions of Illinois. You put that up against Houston where, uh, you know, the, the Cougars are always going to give you something recognizable. You know, you're, you're always going to get tough defense, good, yep. good effort, solid rebounding. Um, you know, the, the, the variable is, as you said, whether Houston can score, but you're always going to get the defense and rebounding from a Kelvin Sampson team. So give me the steady team yep. over the volatile team. I definitely like Houston over Illinois. If we get that five versus four matchup, I do think that Arizona is a very tough team, even though it's a, a fast paced team, uh, a team that likes to run. I mean, Arizona was down 10 to a very good UCLA team in the Pac-12 tournament final without yeah. Kirk Creesa and still found a way to come back. That is it. That is a great display of toughness. You have Coloco and Tubelis, yeah. both, uh, uh, you know, two very different kinds of big men uh, in the paint. So, so Houston, you know, could, could annoy and bother Arizona, but I don't think Houston would beat Arizona. I think the Wildcats uh, are equipped to win that matchup. I'm with you as well. I got to give a shout out to my my alma mater, my UAB Blazers. Get it done in the Conference USA ch title game, which my man, your our friend TJ Reeves called down in uh, da Dallas over the weekend. Jordan Walker, a prolific scorer for UAB. Andy Kennedy, the head coach, a former UAB player. Jordan Walker with 42 points over the weekend in that triple overtime semifinal win versus Middle Tennessee. He's had multiple games this year with 40 plus. So that's the kind of guy, you know, if he get if he gets hot in a one game scenario, potentially against Houston, you know, could be a, a team that could give Houston some problems because again, UAB can score the ball. Andy Kennedy's good offensive coach, former coach at Ole Miss, coming back to his alma mater. So good for UAB getting back in the tournament, winning that conference USA title. You, you know that Gene Bartow is looking down from heaven and smiling and right. uh, worth noting with Houston and UAB, like that could have been an elite eight game in 1982, 40, yes. 40 years ago. Yes. Uh, and actually UAB made the elite eight 
1982. And Houston got all the way to the Final Four uh, before losing to uh, Dean Smith's uh, eventual national champion, uh, North Carolina Tar Heels. But like UAB and Houston were both really, really good. Yes. Uh, in college basketball in the early 1980s for the younger folks in the crowd. A good friend of mine, Steve Mitchell, was on that UAB team back in the early mid-80s that made all those runs in the tournament. A guy that I worked with for many years when I was working at UAB. So shout out to my guy, Steve Mitchell and Gene Bartow and the crew. So uh, Awesome. Yeah, who do you like, who do you like in, the, in the South? Who do you like to get regional final? Do you, is it Villanova, Arizona for you, or do you like Tennessee, Arizona? Yeah, you know, so – you know, Rick Barnes against Jay Wright in the NCAA tournament. Who are you riding with? I think you have to go with, with Jay Wright. Rick Barnes, you know, has done a magnificent job, of course, with this Tennessee team. The, the, this team did not seem to have final four potential in early to mid-January, but Barnes reworked the lineup, went to a three-guard lineup. It brought out the best in this team. But if we get into the NCAA tournament, like who has earned the benefit of the doubt? And who has to prove himself? We all know that answer. So I will take Villanova over Tennessee. And I think that if we get Villanova against Arizona, it really becomes a, a matter of, you know, is Kirk Kreese going to be healthy for right. that game? I think Arizona can get through the first weekend without Kirk Kreese healthy, but it is going to need Kreese uh, on that second weekend uh, to, to get all the way to the final four. So, you know, Colin Gillespie, Yes. wasn't at, at the height of his powers for much of the season, but the past month he's been at, at his very best. And so Colin Gillespie in, in a sweet 16 and then an elite eight, I trust him more than I would trust Arizona, especially if Kirk Teresa is not a hundred percent and can't give Arizona the shooting to space the floor against Villanova's defense. So I will take Villanova wow, from the South that. region. That a boy, that a boy. All right, listen to the Powers on Sports podcast. I'm Jason, along with Matt Zemick from USA Today's Trojan Wire. We're just going through all the brackets, each region. We're giving you some nuggets about a bunch of these teams, giving you some picks and all that such. So uh, let's move to the Midwest. Kansas is the one seed. Auburn, the two seed here. The three seed is – let me find the three seed. The three seed is Wisconsin, and the four seed is Providence. What do you think of uh, the top four, you know, Providence coming in, they got beaten early in that big East tournament. They won the big East regular season, albeit they had to play three less games than everybody else, which gave them a little advantage. What do you think of Providence? Again, a lot of people think another team from out your way, the Jackrabbits from South Dakota state who've won 30 in a row, haven't lost since December is a very dangerous team in this side of the, in this bracket. Yeah, I think if there's a 13 over four upset in the bracket, this is where everyone's going to go because, as you said, South Dakota State hasn't lost since the middle of uh, December, you know, didn't lose a single conference game. Murray State, it's another team that hasn't lost a single conference game, either regular season or tournament. So the Jackrabbits are definitely legit. And then with Providence, you know, Picking South Dakota State over Providence doesn't is not an indication that Providence is overrated. What it means is, like other highly seeded teams that don't have, you know, jump out of the building talent or athleticism, you know, Providence does not have a, a roster of future NBA players, unlike, you know, the, the, the number one seeds uh, that you see. But what Providence did was, 
you know, just does all the little things well, makes free throws, limits turnovers. Providence is just a responsible, tough, poised team, and it's won so many close games, so many overtime games, and it was able to rise all the way up to a four-seed Big East regular season champion. So, like, Providence is the real deal. Providence is a really, really good team, and, and high seeds – exist because they win a lot of close games like you need to win close games to prove yourself uh in not in college basketball in any sport uh so providence is legit providence is not overrated but providence is not an overwhelming team right, providence right. is not an imposing team and so against a team which is not imposing south dakota state's uh elite offense and 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 balance and versatility has a really good chance to pull off the upset so I just want to underscore that you can pick South Dakota State and not say or think sure, that it's sure. a, a negative reflection on Providence. It's just it's a South Dakota State's really good. And Providence is not, you know, a juggernaut. Providence is a good team. But there's a difference between, between being a good team and being an absolute powerhouse. And Providence is not a powerhouse. That's just the way the Friars are. They depend on w- winning close games. What, you know, the, the laws of averages are bound to cut against them. And that, and that game is going to be a very similar athletic game. South Dakota won't be that much out-athleted by Providence, when, whereas if South Dakota State played more a more athletic team, it might be a different situation. The athleticism between the two teams are probably pretty similar with those kids. And, of course, if, you're, if, you, if you don't know much about the bracket, they got the coolest name in college sports, man, the Jackrabbits. It's <laughs> certainly one of the best nicknames out there. All right, let's go to the bottom of that re- the bottom of that region. Team you're very your team you cover every day. USC will play as a seven seed. We'll play the Hurricanes of Miami, another football matchup in the uh two seven in the seven ten matchup, excuse me, in, in Greenville, South Carolina. Give us a little lowdown on USC and kind of what that matchup looks like to you. So, you know, having followed uh, USC very closely all season long, I have to say that this is a matchup which is very thorny. And, and problematic for the Trojans. And why is it problematic? You know, USC's backcourt has struggled this season. Uh, you know, Boogie Ellis has been good, but he has not been great. I mean, he was great in the most recent game for USC uh, against uh, UCLA in the semifinals of the Pac-12 tournament. But Boogie Ellis has been hot and cold. He's been a hit or miss player. Uh it, you know, for USC over the long haul, over the full extent of the season. And what's Miami's strength? Miami's strength is its guards, Cameron McGusty, Charlie Moore, veteran senior guards, you know, who, who uh, Miami depends on. So like they've, they are always the go-to guys uh, for the hurricanes. And so Miami is in a position uh, to, to win the battle of the backcourts. You know, we say you know, the backcourts in March, you know, that, that, that takes center stage. If USC is going to win the, you know, the backcourt doesn't need to outplay Miami's backcourts. I think that's, that's asking uh, too much, but uh, if USC can pretty much, you know, fight to a draw, you know, fairly close in the backcourt, and then it can dominate in the front court with Isaiah Mobley with Chavez Goodwin, they can play USC can play volleyball on the glass, right? against Miami. USC has more length. USC has more size. So if the game is is decided in the paint and near the rim, 
that's a game USC can win. But if it's the game is decided by backcourt play uh, and, and uh, perimeter shooting, that that puts it definitely in Miami's corner. Also, this is this game is an early game, so USC is going to be with early body clocks right. uh, in this particular game, and it's in Greenville, South Carolina, so it's going to be a lot Lost closer country. to Miami than it will to uh, Los Angeles. So really, there's a lot of things that are working against USC in this game. I'd obviously want to see USC win, but it's a matchup with a lot of dynamics that are cutting against the Trojans. Yeah, Enfield, remember Enfield's former Florida Gulf Coast coach, Dunk City back in the day, has done a great job at USC, just got a contract extension a week or so back. He was in the mix for the – or in the, his name was being mentioned for Maryland and some other big jobs. So Enfield's done a great job. Larinaga, who's a very good coach at Miami, kind of similar to what we talked about with Bob McKillop. He was at George Mason forever, took them to the Final Four, and then took the job in Miami. He's done a pretty solid job at Miami in his six or seven years there. So very good uh, matchup there. So you think you think Auburn's vulnerable? Oh, definitely. I mean, you looked at Auburn in the uh, SEC tournament against Texas A&M, and you know the thing that Bruce Pearl has to solve with this team is he has to get his guards under control. They can't be jacking up thirty-foot jump shots. Right. And it's been a recurring thing. I've talked to Auburn people uh, over the course of the season. They they, they just can't understand why the, the guards think they have to take so many shots when you have a possible number one pick in the NBA draft, Jabari Smith, the the offense has to run through him. He needs to touch the ball consistently whenever Auburn gets a half court possession. He doesn't need to be the guy who shoots, but he has to get a touch that the defense has to respond to him, react to him. You free up space elsewhere on the floor. Auburn has to straighten out its half court offense Uh, You know, I don't like USC's matchup against Miami, but if USC is somehow able to get past Miami, USC, I think, matches up really well with Auburn. The the kind of way that Auburn plays, USC, if it can drag Auburn into the mud, uh, you know, and and if Auburn's guards are not patient in getting the ball to Jabari Smith, that's a game USC can win because USC – you know, Miami's backcourt makes really good, responsible decisions, and right. Auburn's backcourt does not. And so even though Auburn has more jump-out-of-the-building talent and Auburn has more, a lot more size uh, compared to Miami, you know, it, the Auburn doesn't, isn't very disciplined. So Auburn's ceiling's very high, but Auburn's floor can be very low, as we saw against Texas A&M. So if USC is able to deal with that very difficult matchup against Miami, I think USC can can definitely pull the upset against Auburn. Also, Miami, because of its veteran backcourt, the Hurricanes would be in a position uh, to beat Auburn. I'm not sure I'd I'd call my shot, but like I think like that's if it's not a 50-50 game, it's certainly very close, both for USC and Miami against Auburn in the round of 32. I, th- I think personally you're going to see Auburn play better because I think they're going to get out of the SEC conference play where they're not used to see where they're used to seeing the same people over and over. I think that size of Auburn of Jamari Smith Kessler, I think the guard play is not great, but it's not horrific. I think you're going to see Bruce Pearl play a lot of guys, play a bench, press, things like that, that he likes to do. So I think Auburn's, I think, and this, this is going to be a good spot for Auburn, I think, to get at least to the Sweet 16 here, and if not to the final eight, because in the other half of that bracket, you got Wisconsin, and then you got all the trouble that's going on at LSU. 
Wisconsin potentially basically is going to have two home games if they win the first one. Those games are in Milwaukee, so Wisconsin will have a overwhelming home court advantage in Milwaukee. I think they should get to the Sweet 16 comfortably. Do you think Kansas gets a, Do you think Kansas gets all the way to the Elite Eight, or do you think a team like Iowa, who who just won the Big Ten tournament, is another sleeper team here? A lot of scoring. The Murray brothers are really good. The McCaffrey brothers are on that team. McCaffrey's a good coach. They can score the ball. I think that's a dangerous team if they can play a little bit of defense in Iowa City. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Kansas uh, got, in my mind, a great draw. I think Kansas really hit the jackpot with this particular draw because let's remember, Iowa is the five seed here. Um, Iowa has not been to the Sweet 16 since 1999 under Dr. Tom Davis. Yeah. So and 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 what what do we know about Iowa under Fran McCaffrey that the, the Hawkeyes uh, they they have a tough a tough time defending like first Fran one to coaches, eighty first to eighty yeah, that's right I mean we saw that in the round of thirty two last year against Oregon you know Iowa was the two seed but you know if you looked at that game you would have thought Oregon was the two seed Iowa was the seven because Oregon just had much better uh, two way players uh, than Iowa did so. You know, Fran coaches offense, but defense has usually been lacking. And people will say, well, Iowa held Purdue to 66 in the Big Ten tournament championship game. You know what? Purdue's underachieved this season, and the Big Ten has underachieved this season. I know the Big Ten has nine NCAA tournament bids. That's really just a product of a lot of teams being just inside the cut line. Like Rutgers, Indiana, and Michigan all barely got in. They just had enough to make it. There's no really great team uh, in the Big Ten. Uh, so, you know, I, Kansas just absolutely hit the jackpot in this region. Kansas would beat Iowa and also Providence. Providence is not that uh, – it's not a fearsome number four seed. Like, Illinois has a lot more upside than Providence if you're going to compare uh, number four seeds – uh, in the NCAA tournament. So Kansas getting Providence as opposed to Illinois, like it, it just, it's a, it's a great draw for Bill Self and the Jayhawks. There you go. Who do you, who do you like in the region? You like, so you like Kansas? I do like Kansas because I don't trust Wisconsin, especially if, you know, Johnny Davis, he has to be elite for Wisconsin to thrive. And if not, you know, if he's not on his game every night, Wisconsin is extremely vulnerable. And then it's hard to be too confident about Auburn with that backcourt. Now, I mean, maybe Bruce Pearl's going to figure it out, but I just wouldn't bet on that happening four times to get all the way to the final four. So I would say Kansas, Kansas over Auburn uh, in, in the uh, regional final there. I'm going to go off the radar here a little bit. I'm going to say, I'm going to go Auburn, Iowa, elite eight game. And I'm going to take, the Hawkeyes to get to the final four. I don't know why I think this. I saw Keegan Murray. He is a silky smooth scorer. I just, I really liked what I saw out of him in this tournament. And uh, I, for some reason, this could be my, the wild card team to get to. Because I think, Matt, as you and I both know, the parity in college basketball this year is incredible. There's not a great team. I think we could, we could all make an argument for probably 15 to 20 teams that we think could make a run to the final four and could legitimately make it. So, I think this could be the region where you could have a sleeper team because uh, I, I, I don't love Kansas. I, they're good. They're not great. Self has had a lot of meltdown moments in the tournament. 
And I just think that this bracket, this bracket could be the one where somebody out of the kind of out of the blue comes out of nowhere and gets to the final four. Just a quick word. You have Iowa and Auburn in the, in the elite eight. If we get that game, that is a 90 to 88 basketball yes. game. And that yes. would be terrifically entertaining. I agree with that. I agree with that. All right, let's go to the East region. Last region. Baylor, the one seed, Kentucky, the two seed, a couple interesting matchups. Potentially you got, you have the St. Mary's playing again, team, you know, really well, St. Mary's is potentially playing the Wyoming, Indiana winner. Again, a lot of people probably, you know, Wyoming as well. Just give me a little, some nuggets about St. Mary's and Wyoming. I know you cover those guys and I'll give you, and obviously Indiana, most people probably have seen Indiana the last few, few days and couple weeks the run they made in the tournament and, and such. So give me a little St. Mary's and Wyoming talk. So with St. Mary's, here's the thing. You know, Chet Holmgren, a magnificently skilled player. No one needs an explanation about that. But he's just a freshman, and he's a string bean. Like, that guy is reed thin, wafer thin. And so what did St. Mary's do when it beat Gonzaga in uh, Moraga, California, in, in late February, and then, you know, gave the Zags another good test in the final of the WCC tournament, St. Mary's roughed up Chet Holmgren. St. Mary's has a physical, grinding, punishing st style. They have sculpted, muscular, savvy guys uh, in their lineup. They're, they, they are physically and mentally tough. They make every basket difficult for you. I mean, you know, they, they really slowed down uh, Gonzaga's offense. The Zags, you know, normally are just like a knife through warm butter against most of the teams that they play, but against St. Mary's, a lot more playing in the mud. And so it's a real testament to Randy Bennett in terms of how he coaches defense and how he coaches X's and O's that he knew how, to, you know, in terms of personnel and scheme to slow down Gonzaga twice within the span of two weeks. Yeah. You know, when you can do that, that really speaks to uh, his coaching chops. Uh, so that that's going to make St. Mary's very difficult uh, to deal with. Uh, I do like uh, St. Mary's to beat UCLA uh, in a five versus four game in the round of 32. And then for Wyoming, Hunter Maldonado, you know, like he is the, 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 the guy that Wyoming turns to when it needs a bucket, uh, when it needs clutch free throws, he had a, he had a pair of free throws with two tenths of a second left uh, to win a key or to send a, a late, regular season game into overtime, which the Cowboys then won that helped them barely get into the field. So Hunter Maldonado's the, the crunch time, you know, climb on my back guy. Right. Wyoming has, that's really one of their bigger assets. And the other thing is, you know, Jeff Linder came to Wyoming a few years ago. It's obviously hard to, to win in Wyoming. It's hard to recruit there. Just look at all the other places where it's really hard to recruit nationally like look at oregon state just as an example out here in the west it's hard to recruit kids to come to corvallis oregon to play college basketball if it was easy to to do that oregon state's elite eight appearance would have just led to you know a tsunami of elite recruits sure. or, or transfer portal prospects pounding on the doors to, to to go play for oregon state but no one wanted to come there even after the elite eight even after oregon state was you know, within a couple baskets of yep. beating Houston yep. to go to the final four, Oregon state, of course, went all the way to three and 28. So just to draw the comparison, it's hard to win in Laramie, Wyoming. It's hard to recruit kids to come there. You get, you know, to get to the NCAA tournament 
as an at-large team at the University of Wyoming, Huge. that tells me a lot about Jeff Linder and the coaching job he has done uh, for the Pokes. So you know that 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 tells you that Wyoming is an extremely well-coached and resourceful team. It's going to be a fascinating matchup with Indiana in Dayton. You don't you, you you're not a believer in the experience coming back for UCLA, Hakez, Zhuzhang, Tiger Campbell, Mick Cronin. Uh, I'm not. And here's the thing with UCLA. Like, this has been a good season for UCLA. But we have to – it's a good season because last year, UCLA – now, UCLA made the Final Four and played a lot of really good games to get to the Final Four. But last year, UCLA was an 11 seed. So, like, UCLA improved by seven seed lines this year. Right. If you improve by seven seed lines, like, that's a really good uh, season. The thing about UCLA is that everyone fell in love with the team after the classic national semifinal against Gonzaga and thought, well, you have everybody coming back and you have Peyton Watson, this elite recruit. So UCLA is going to be a top five team. See, that was an overreaction. That was assigning too much weight to the final four. Not that it wasn't important, not that it wasn't great. Of course it was. But we have to keep in mind that when programs make the Final Four, there are different ways of making the Final Four. There's the way UCLA made it last year, which had some 1983 North Carolina State flavor, you know, with Alabama and yeah. Herb Jones missing yeah. free throws yeah. in the Sweet 16. So yeah. that was a lot yeah. like Jim Valvano, 1983. A little bit of pixie dust. Like there was good basketball mixed in to be sure, but you, UCLA needed some luck. So that was a joyride. Doesn't mean UCLA didn't earn it, but UCLA certainly had all the bounces go its way. So that's one way to make a Final Four. The other way to make a Final Four is 1996 Kentucky, where you beat four teams by an average of 25 points. <laughs> so the thing is, and I think well, that, ain't happening the this point. Year. that ain't happening this year. Yeah, man. yeah. But you can grasp the larger point I'm trying to make is that when you curb stomp four opponents and make the Final Four, of course, you're a top five team the next season. Right. You know, assuming that you bring back enough players. But UCLA had a joyride, a magic carpet ride as an 11 seed. So the idea that UCLA was going to go from an 11 all the way up to a one or maybe the strongest number two seed. Yeah. That was just a, that was an excessive set of expectations. Getting a four seed is a good season. And yet many people are going to think that UCLA underachieved. Uh, because it had those top five expectations before the season. So I don't think UCLA is, uh, you know, a, a suspect team. I just think UCLA is more limited than a lot of people thought it was going to be before the season. So in UCLA St. Mary's, like Mick Cronin and Randy Bennett, they both love to muck it up. They both yeah. love to coach defense. They both love to get slower. games in a slow, slow pace, pace. Slow in a half pace. court. So I think there's very little daylight between those two teams. And yeah. I think that St. Mary's ability to stand up to Gonzaga twice. And let's remember Gonzaga crushed UCLA early in the season. St. Mary's did an objectively better job playing Gonzaga than UCLA did. That's all I need to know in terms of picking St. Mary's over UCLA. Bottom of that bracket, you got Kentucky, the two seed, a potential second round matchup with Murray state, another in-state Kentucky team. You got San Francisco, your team from the West coast conference and that, to think about it, either Murray State or San Francisco will be in the second round of the NCAA tournament, no matter what is a seven seed and a 10 seed. It's hard to believe that those two teams were that highly seeded. 
One thing I like, think a couple things I like about Kentucky, they've got an inside presence with Shibway, who's an impact All-American type scorer and rebounder. They got some veterans on the team now. They got Grady, the, the transfer from Davidson. They got Ty Ty Washington. If they can be healthy and make a couple jump shots to open up that open up the lane a little bit for Shibway, this is a super dangerous team that I think can get out of this region if you're Kentucky and Calipari. Yeah, it comes down to perimeter shooting for Kentucky because Kentucky could not hit the side of a barn against Tennessee. But of right. course, Tennessee or Kentucky is not going to face defenses on par with Tennessee's, you know, in the first three rounds of the tournament. Now, if we get a Kentucky Baylor Elite Eight game, which I think we will, you know, that so Baylor give provides a level of defense uh, that's going to be tough for Kentucky. But uh, this is something that other commentators have noted, and I'm going to pick up on it as well. I think Kentucky probably has not necessarily the best starting five, but Kentucky has like the best seven-man rotation. One through seven, you're really hard-pressed to find a better collection of seven players on the same team uh, than Kentucky. So obviously it starts with Oscar Shibway, but Ty Ty Washington, Severe Wheeler, uh, Kellen, you know, Kellen Grady, I think, is really the whole key. Like he... He has to step up, especially if, you know, if Kentucky gets to Baylor, he Grady will have to have a good game uh, for Kentucky to advance, but defense rebounding, uh, you know, taking care of the ball. I think Kentucky checks a lot of boxes and given Baylor's injury limitations, you know, no Jonathan right. Chamwa right. Chachua, he's out for the rest of the season. Um, you know, that, that, that limitation uh, certainly gives Kentucky in my mind, the edge in a possible uh, Elite Eight game. So I think I think it's all set up for Kentucky to advance out of the East. I don't think Baylor's getting to the Elite Eight. I think he, Baylor, again, remember this, folks, Marquette, the coach of Marquette is no, no longer Steve Wojciechowski. It's Shaka Smart, who used to be at Texas. So he knows Baylor very well. So if Marquette can get through North Carolina, I think Shaka Smart with his pedigree at VCU, Texas, can give Baylor some problems. And like you said, the injury issues at Baylor have been significant. If Marquette doesn't take care of Baylor, I think the, whoever comes out of that St. Mary's UCLA, Indiana pod will give Baylor all they want. So I don't think Baylor's getting to the final eight personally. I think they're getting knocked out before the sweet 16. I like Kentucky at the bottom half. My one sleeper in this region would be Purdue. They can score. They've got some bigs. They've got some pretty good guard play. They're not great defensively. But again, getting out of the Big Ten, I think, will help Purdue when you're playing different teams and different styles of play. So I think the sleeper team potentially could be Purdue there. They're, they can score the ball. And as much as we like defense, you ultimately have to have guys that can score the ball in these NCAA tournament games in neutral sites. Yeah, well, Purdue has not been to the Final Four since 1980. Of course, came agonizingly close in 2019, but Virginia hit the last second yep. buzzer beater to go into overtime. Uh, and, and then beat the Boilermakers, uh, you know, leaving them so agonizingly close. So, you know, maybe Purdue has another really good run, and maybe Jaden Ivey is this year's answer to what Carson Edwards was right. in 2019. And really, if Purdue is going to get to the Final Four, it will need Ivey specifically to, to go on a Carson Edwards-type run because that, like, Carson Edwards was the fuel behind Purdue's run in 2019. Uh, other great Purdue teams have had 
elite meal ticket scores. Of course, Glenn Big Dog Robinson yep. on the 1994 team under Gene Cady, which was a number one seed, but lost to the Grant Hill Cherokee Parks Duke team in the Elite <laughs> Eight. Look at 1994. Look so at the, Matt Zemick pulling out Cherokee Parks. I like it. Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing with Purdue, though, Purdue's best scorer needs to be the best player on the court. So that means J- Jaden Ivey has to be at his best. I know you have Zach Eady and, and Travion Williams. Yeah. Uh, Sasha Stefanovic, also a very good player. But it's Ivey. Jaden Ivey has to be the best player on the floor. So is he going to be the best player on the floor four times? I, you know, he, he has enough ups and downs to, to make me think that, no, you know, Kentucky's probably going to be able to throw too many bodies at him defensively. And so if we do get a Purdue-Kentucky Sweet 16 matchup, uh, I definitely like the Wildcats in, the, in that if that happens. I like Kentucky getting out of this region uh, would be my number one selection here. I would go um, second pick. I would take UCLA. Uh, again, I think the experience of those guys, the guard play, I think uh, I think Haquez is a big shot maker. I think Zhu Zhang's a big shot maker. I think for in a four-game condensed situation, I think that that UCLA team could put it together. So I'm gonna I'm taking Kentucky or UCLA out of this region. Yep, I have I have Kentucky, and so that sets up a Kentucky uh, Gonzaga yep. national semifinal. And I like Kentucky because. Uh, you know, I'm, I referenced this earlier. Chet Holmgren, fantastic player. You know, brilliant. He's gonna, he's probably gonna have a great NBA career, but, but his body has not filled out yet. Right. Then is around. St. Mary's, St. Mary's showed that he can get shoved around by bigger, heavier, more physical bodies, and that's exactly what Kentucky has. So if Kentucky is able to get to the national semis against Gonzaga, the heft that Kentucky has uh, in its lineup uh, is built to provide like the St. Mary's level of physicality, but, you know, but Kentucky has more high end skill than St. Mary's does. So that's a, that is not a good matchup for Gonzaga. You think, you think back to last year's national title game, like Baylor had the dudes, Baylor had thick physical cut, yeah. players sculpted mus- muscular players linebackers. who are able to be much Football more physical much more fit absolutely much more physical than the players gonzaga had and gonzaga you know was able to roll through the first four rounds of that tournament but then you know going up against baylor it was a totally different level of of a, of a physical challenge and gonzaga was clearly not ready for it so i think kentucky really fits that mold very similarly uh, if if they those two teams meet in the final four, I got you. All right, who you got cutting down the nets? Uh, so I have to, I'm going to leave I, this you know, in pencil so, for you now because I know it's we're doing this interview early in the week here, so I know there's lots of things that happen between now and Thursday. So um, I'm not holding you to this. Just give me a pencil pick. Yeah. Well, so on the other half, I have uh, Villanova and Kansas, and I think that Villanova, wow. as it did in San Antonio in 2018. Uh, would beat Kansas in a national semifinal. So mm. the Wildcats are going to win the national title, but is it going to be Kentucky or Villanova? Uh, I think it's going to be Kentucky. And I think that, you know, if we get Kentucky and Villanova uh, in the title game, that Oscar Sheeb weighs the difference maker, that Villanova does not have a paint presence uh, on the same level as Sheeb you know, and, and, and the thing about Sheeb 
even if he's not scoring, he's going to pull down 17, 18 rebounds. Yep. He's going to get extra possessions uh, for your team. And so as long as Kentucky doesn't turn the ball over, it's probably going to have more possessions uh, than Villanova would. So uh, Kentucky's my pick, but you know, you look at Kentucky and Kentucky just played like crap against Tennessee uh, in the SEC tournament semifinal. So what does that tell you? It, it tells you, as you said correctly, there is no great team. There's no heavyweight. It's not one team versus the field or, you know, last year it was Gonzaga and Baylor and then yeah. everyone else. Right. We don't have that dynamic. So, you know, I have Villanova uh, uh, and Kentucky playing the title game. A guy I interviewed on a podcast had Purdue and Arizona. Hey, you could take two names out of the hopper, put them in the national title game, and I could say, all right, I can see that happening. So, like, right. that's the NCAA tournament that we have in front of us. It's going to be amazing. And a couple more things to note, fans, as, as you fill out your brackets and as you watch games, the officiating. Remember, these officials are, aren't you? Are calling? They won't be calling their conferences. They'll be, you know, you'll have big, you'll have Mountain West officials calling an ACC game. You'll have, a, you know, Big Ten officials calling the, you know, the Big Twelve, the the Big Twelve teams and all that stuff. So officiating will be critical in these games. How many guy of the star players can stay out of foul trouble? There's a lot of big men in the tournament this year. A lot of teams have good big men as in as opposed to years past. So can the big men stay out of foul trouble? Arizona's guys. Gonzaga's guys, Sheepway from Kentucky. So you got teams with good big men. Can they stay out of foul trouble and can they adjust to how the game's being officiated? And hopefully the officials will let the te- these guys play and not call so many chippy uh, nickel dimer kind of fouls. Yeah. And you never know what kind of a whistle you're going to get. And it's, and it's, this is where coaches really show up. You know, when, when coaches get into the NCAA tournament and in the first five minutes that you see, how a game is being officiated. You know, can you get through to your players and tell them, hey, this is how the game is being officiated. So yep. this is how we have to adjust, you know, how we go about our business. You know, the great coaches will get their players to make those in-course midstream adjustments to how uh, uh, the, the whistle's going uh, so that their players don't get in foul trouble, are able to defend intelligently, are able to attack intelligently, on offense. So, you know, that, that alchemy is always part of, of the puzzle uh, of, of getting through the NCAA tournament to the final four and then the national title stand in early April. And, and, and one last point to talk about, we'll get you out of here. The, the, the importance of the details, go, uh, making your free throws. Villanova is a great example of a team that makes their free throws. And that goes back to guard play. Typically, guard the good guard play teams with good guard play are the guys that can make free throws in the last minute, minute and a half of a game. And, and, and when you need a bucket, do you have a guy on your team that you can give the ball to and say, go get us two points? No doubt about it. And, uh, you know, with, with, with guard play, I would just underscore that, you know, Connor Gillespie of Villanova was, was not, you know, an extremely prominent player. Uh, not playing anywhere near his best early in the season, but the version of him that has shown up the past month, he's become the the stone cold killer that everyone expected him to be. And so, you know, as long as Gillespie is playing at this exalted level, that that's what I reiterate. That's why I have so much confidence in Villanova at this tournament. And Gonzaga has the same thing with Nebhart. He's not the greatest player in the world, but he's great for that team. He gets the team in the right positions 
the right sets. He's not an elite athlete, but he makes the open shot when he needs to make it. He's good in and around the lane as far as floaters, and, and he makes his free throws at the end of the game. So I think those two kind of guys in older teams, you got a lot of transfers. You got a lot of fifth and sixth year players because of COVID. So be on the lookout for older teams to have success in this tournament. No doubt about it. And, and, and the, the, the fact that there is so much parity in this particular year of college basketball, it does stand to reason that, you know, without extraordinary talent uh, on, on various teams, that it's, it's going to be that savvy, uh, you know, w- wisdom filled group you know, which knows how to play together and is going to maximize its resources, that that's going to be the kind of team that wins the national title. You got it, man. All right, Matt, great work, man. Awesome nuggets on all teams all over the country. Hopefully, folks, if you're listening, you're learning something about teams from all over the place, not just the West Coast, East. We're giving you nuggets about teams all over the country and all conferences and such. So, Matt, tell everybody where they can find your work uh, online and all that good stuff trojanswire.usatoday.com so covering usc and also the pac-12 you know arizona and ucla during the ncaa tournament uh on twitter at trojanswire uh you know we're just going to be diving into that usc miami matchup and you know if if usc is able to get through that we're going to have you know extended coverage of what is likely to be a usc auburn matchup uh over the weekend and of course once usc's season is, is over like Andy Enfield, you know, he got the big contract extension, got the pay raise from athletic director Mike Bone. He, he, you know, this is raising the bar in terms of expectations at USC, not a traditional basketball school, but like USC's made the investment in him. So that ratchets up the pressure. He needs to make some very splashy acquisitions in the transfer portal. So we're going to be covering uh, how he handles the offseason. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a Tom Brady shirt in the mail, okay, for his 23rd season, okay? I'm gonna put Zemek on the back. Zemek number 20. Instead of 12, I'm gonna make you 21, Zemek, okay? Whatever works, Jason. <laughs> and have have it has has Lincoln Riley invited you out to his 17 million dollar pad yet to the compound? No, he has not. And of course, I'm in Phoenix, so it's not as though Lincoln Riley would have a chance to do that. But hey, you know. This is, this is, uh, it, it, you know, Lincoln Riley has a lot of pressure on his back. So when he, when he sleeps at night, you know, he's going to, he's going to sleep on a very soft bed in a very uh, cushy and, and palatial uh, home. So like, you know, yeah, he will need, he will need to get his beauty sleep, uh, you know, because when he's awake, you know, there's going to be 24 seven pressure on his back at USC. Well, Matt, Matt, you, 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 he's got a private jet. He'll come pick you up in Phoenix, man. <laughs> he's got access to the, to the G5 from USC.com. Come on. If, if only I was that much of a power player in the college <laughs> sports industry, if uh, only. And one more, one more sneaky note that happened a couple months ago. That's major news for USC. They got the kid from Oklahoma, Williams. Talk about that for one minute. Well, the thing about Caleb Williams is that, you know, Jackson Dart transferred to Ole Miss. So with Keaton Slovis uh, transferring to Pitt, that quarterback room got very, very thin for USC. And so you know, you will remember, Jason, that there were rumors that Caleb Williams would go to Wisconsin because Bobby Ingram, the former Seattle Seahawk, uh, you know, he, you know, he had an in with the Williams family. So there were, there was, a, there were worries from the Trojans that, Wisconsin was going to swoop in and pluck 
Caleb Williams. So if that had happened, USC would have been very thin and under-equipped at quarterback. So in addition to everything everyone knows about Caleb Williams, great dual-threat quarterback, tremendous open field speed, can throw downfield dimes, the biggest value, the biggest sense of importance attached to Caleb Williams is that if he had not come to USC, the Trojans were in real trouble for 2022. So Caleb Williams, in many ways, saved Lincoln Riley's bacon in year one at USC, giving the Trojans a chance to do something special. All right, buddy. Great work, man. Keep it up, and we'll definitely be uh, in touch as we move throughout the spring and in the summer, man. Have a great week, and hope you have a great bracket, man. How many brackets do you do? One? I do, I'm a one-bracket guy. Okay. You put All down right. your picks, you ride with them, and you know you, you live with the consequences. <laughs> there you go, man. All right, Matt, have a great week, my man. It's one of the greatest weeks in sports. I hope you enjoy it too, Jason. Yeah, and by, just so you know, I'm going to be sick Thursday and Friday, so I'll be at a sports bar somewhere watching all the games. Absolutely. <laughs> You're a good American. <laughs> all right, good luck, buddy. See you, talk to you soon. Thanks, Jason. Always great to be on the Powers on Sports podcast. Appreciate it. And we'll be right back with more on the Powers on Sports podcast. And before we go, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Scott Hall. If you remember wrestling fans out there, Scott Hall, Razor Ramon. You got the uh, NWO from back in the WCW days. Scott Hall passed away this week, 63 years old. Complications um, from a surgery he had. He, he was struggling physically the last several years. Had some addiction issues. But if you were a wrestling fan in the 90s and early 2000s, Scott Hall was a legendary entertainer, man. Razor Ramon, Yo Chico. Yo, uh, another one for the good guys, the original bad guys. So give a shout out to Scott Hall for all, again, all you, all of us wrestling fans out there. We know Scott Hall well. I knew Scott Hall back when he was in his Florida championship wrestling days here in the state of Florida. So rest in peace, Scott. Hope you're feeling better and we'll, you'll be missed, my brother, in the wrestling world. Thanks again for listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you are hearing us tonight. Remember, you can reach out to us on Twitter at JPOSports. So we'd love to hear your feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes. And again, thanks for all the support. Remember to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And we'd love to see you back next time for the next episode of the Powers on Sports podcast. Have a great week.